Well, I learned in, uh, this is on, right? Okay. I learned in seminary that uh, a good reading will always make up for some poor preaching, so <laughs> I've kind of banked on it over the years. I've uh, certainly preached my share of forgettable messages, and uh, just happens when you do it as often as I do. Uh, familiar chapter today. There it goes. All right. I'm a. Uh, how about that? Yeah. Okay. Got it. All right. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's one of the more familiar stories in the Bible. And, uh, you know, when we look at all of the supernatural acts that God does in the Bible, we wonder why sometimes God performs miracles on some occasions, but he doesn't do it in others. For instance, he delivered Peter from prison, but he didn't deliver John the Baptist from the sword of Herod's executioner. Uh, He supplied Elijah's every need during the famine in the nation of Israel, but he didn't do the same for Jacob and his family during the famine in Canaan. Uh, He healed Naaman of leprosy, but he didn't heal Paul of his thorn in the flesh. He raised Hezekiah off his deathbed, extended his life for 15 years, and yet he didn't do the same for the young and beautiful Rachel after she gave birth to Benjamin, even today. Some are delivered from physical maladies, and some aren't. And this would reflect something to be true in our own fellowship here. Now, why is that? Well, we're going to learn that part of the reason for the ways of God in our passage today, and it surfaces really in the remarkable confession of these three young Jews, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known by their Babylonian names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, the story opens, as we just read, with the story of our, with the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built and placed on the plain of Dura. Now, in the province of Babylon, it was there. Now, it was 90 feet high, 9 feet thick. So, at the very least, it was noticeable. Uh, more likely, you know, it could have been a statement of the self-deification of Nebuchadnezzar. Kings have been known to do that kind of a thing. But more than likely, it was an edifice intended to honor the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. And it was customary at that particular time to dedicate images, and this was no exception. And so a decree went out that all of the officials of all of the subjugated nations that were in Babylon at that time They were to gather at the image. And as soon as the Chaldean Philharmonic burst into music, everybody was to bow before that statue. Now, when the officials fell on their faces, it implied three things. First, it was an admission that they were an integral part of the Babylonian Empire. Second, it was a statement that they were honoring Nebuchadnezzar as emperor. And the third thing, and this was really the clincher, 
is that it was a common belief back then that when one nation conquered another nation, the gods of the victorious nation conquered the gods of the defeated nation. And therefore, to bow was a public acknowledgement of your belief in the existence of those gods, a statement of your belief in the superiority of those gods, and your submission to those gods. Refusal to bow was an act of treason and incurred, as we know, uh, the harshest of punishments. Now, finally, the moment came, and the music sounded, and everybody's face hit the dirt, except for the three Jews. Now, in the next scene, we're transferred from the plain of Dura to the very courtroom of Nebuchadnezzar, and before the throne stood these Babylonian wise men. And after pompously repeating the decree, they read the indictment. And it says... Again, they said, Nebuchadnezzar, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the main star, over the administration of the province of Babylon. And we don't want to mention any names, but namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you, and they don't serve the gods or worship the golden image which you've set up. Now, what they're doing here is playing on the pity of the king, accusing the Jews of ingratitude. And the king gave them high positions and they respond in this insolent manner. It's just not right. So Nebuchadnezzar calls the three young men and surprisingly gives them an opportunity to deny the charge. He repeats the proclamation, he makes clear the penalty, and then he concludes his very short address with these words of irony in verse 15. What God can deliver you out of my hands? Now, this is what we would call a rhetorical question. Now, Nebuchadnezzar isn't looking for information. He's simply making a statement. It's not unlike uh, a parent uh, making a statement to a stubborn five-year-old boy. Do you want a spanking? Uh, You know, the the five-year-old is not going to rub his chin a little bit and say, well, you know, Mom and Dad, I... I've been thinking about going outside and playing, but now that you mention it, you know, a good spanking might build my character. Go, let's go ahead with it. You know? No, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, you know, when he talks about what God can deliver you out of my hands, he was saying basically no one. It's a point that he's making. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar, you know, asked that question, what he's doing is reminding again that the people had absolutely no choice. You've got three men standing before a powerful king whose edict they just basically defied. And finally, the the silence breaks, and what these three men give is one of the most courageous statements in all of the Bible. And they stand before him, And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now, my translation is a little bit obscure here. Um, uh, It leaves a little bit to be desired, but what they're really saying is something like this. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us, then he will. If he is not able to deliver us, then he won't. And this, of course, raises that perplexing question. Uh, 
are these young men questioning God's ability to deliver them? Uh, the answer is obviously not. I mean, they were part of, the, of a nation whose entire history was nothing but a testimony to the omnipotence of God. They were sure about that. I mean, they were part of Israel, who was delivered from the hands of Pharaoh. They were part of the nation of Israel that was supernaturally brought across the Red Sea on dry land. They were supernaturally sustained in the wilderness for 40 years. And when they came into the promised land to take hold of it under the leadership of Joshua, whether they were able to, to supernaturally subjugate more powerful armies. So the history of the nation of Israel is one of a continual testimony of the omnipotence of God. So there's no possibility that these three Jewish fellows question God's power. What they were questioning, they were voicing uncertainty with respect to God's purpose. They just weren't sure God would choose to deliver them from the furnace. And so they said something like this. If, our God, if, if delivering us is consistent with God's purpose, then he'll deliver us. If delivering us from that furnace is not consistent with God's purpose, then he will not deliver us and we will die. Now that kind of trust comes from young men whose lives have been laced with a lot of hardship. You consider just from where they came. You see, they would have prayed long ago as a family, as young guys, that when they saw that Nebuchadnezzar was gaining power in the, in the, as the king of Babylon and it was gaining strength, that Nebuchadnezzar would never defeat him, defeat them, but he did. They would have prayed that uh, as Babylon was going to hijack some of the students that were there, some of the bright young students, and take them back to Babylon, that they wouldn't be included, but they were. When they heard about the decree and had to bow down before the image. They must have prayed that Nebuchadnezzar would come to his senses, but he didn't. They must have prayed that the decree that had been made wouldn't really be reinforced, but it was. They might have prayed that Daniel's influence over King Nebuchadnezzar would have worked in their favor and that they would have been excused, but they weren't. Maybe they prayed that when the day came uh, that nobody would notice that they didn't bow down or maybe if somebody noticed that they wouldn't tell. But people noticed and people told. So not one of their prayers was answered. At every point, these three young men would have been bitterly disappointed. You know, at every point, the night beer became closer and closer to reality. And now they were faced with the worst-case scenario, and every door of escape has been closed. And so they testify once more to their faith and uh, of the one they do serve. It says in verse 18, Even if our Lord does not deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve the God's or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know, you ask a question like this, there's young guys, uh, how does a human heart get shaped like that, with that kind of conviction in the midst of that kind of, of desperation? You see, these young men 
were abs- they, they, they were unsure of God's purposes in life, but they were absolutely committed to them. Not a shred of compromise anywhere. Now, in the next scene, we uh, discover that God was not able to keep these men from the fiery furnace. Maybe they were hoping that Nebuchadnezzar would be impressed by their quiet conviction or humble demeanor and just let the issue die, but he wasn't. Instead, he became enraged. He heated up the furnace seven times more than usual and threw the Israelites in. And it created something of a vacuum, I suppose, and sucked in the king's guards as well, so they were all in there. But Nebuchadnezzar, as he peers into the furnace, there you go, as he peers into the furnace, he sees this startling sight. Not three men, but four. They're not bound, but walking around. Not scorched, but unhurt. Not scrambling for the exits, but enjoying the coziness of the fire. (laughs) Uh, You know, the question that comes out is, who was that fourth individual in there? Uh, I think most people, uh, most biblical scholars say, well, that was a theophany. That was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. The second person of the triune God was there in the furnace that was with them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar went to the door of the furnace and he called them out and Jesus disappears, if you please, that fourth member. And the other three emerge from the furnace. And uh, we discover here that the God who was not able to keep them from the fiery furnace was able to deliver them through it because uh, it wasn't his purposes to to leave them in there, obviously, but to deliver them. And uh, we ask, what what was God trying to do in the midst of this? Oh, I believe, what was God doing? He says, I believe it was to introduce the king of Babylon to the king of the universe. And let me read a few more verses. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as to not serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I will make a decree that any people, nation, tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver this way. And then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Now some ask, well, where in the world was Daniel in the midst of all of this? No idea. I don't know. Maybe on assignment somewhere else. But the jealous Chaldeans that brought the charge against the three Jews in order to get them out of their high positions, actually and ironically, it led to greater prosperity, greater influence. Now, you look at a story like that and you say, well, what lessons come out of it? And so I've isolated three of them for you, and I want to comment on each one of them. They're in your bulletin handout, but the first one that we learn, we learn something about tolerance. 
See, Daniel and his three buddies had grown up in Israel. And it was an environment where the cultural institutions supported their belief in God. But in Babylon, they were immersed in a religiously diverse society. All of the public institutions, the art, the media, the science, and so forth, were committed to religious pluralism. There were many gods, many belief systems. No one has a corner on the truth. All religious systems were considered equally valid by the irreligious masses. So the purpose of the statue was not to worship the Babylonian gods instead of the biblical god. It was to worship the Babylonian gods in addition to the biblical god. Uh, Everyone can worship their own god, just don't worship him exclusively. That way you'll be validating the face of all all faiths and demonstrating that you're free from religious bigotry. Now, we've all heard that kind of a thing. You know, we live here in America in a religiously pluralistic society. And in the eyes of some, the secret to getting along is to endorse the credibility of all faiths. The problem with that line of thinking is that all faiths can't be credible because all faiths can't be true. They can all be false, but they differ so much from each other that they can't all be true. Now, you lump them together and you contend. What you do is to to lump them all together and contend that that they're basically the same. It's just simply to insult the adherence of the various faiths. And this is why the Christian faith always gets hammered, always just gets nailed. You see, some contend that Christianity is oppressive because we're trying to get people to believe in Jesus Christ. And yet Christianity is not oppressive because we don't harm, we don't kill, we don't denigrate those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. We simply love them. The three Jews weren't demonstrating in front of the golden image. They were just not bowing down. Now contrast their religious behavior with the frothing of Nebuchadnezzar here. You know, Nebuchadnezzar says, you're free to worship your Jewish God as long as you also bow down to the Babylonian gods. Now think for just a moment here. If someone says, you must not convert others to your way of thinking, that person that says you must not convert others to your way of thinking is actually trying to convert you to a more moderate religious reality than you currently possess. So they're violating what they're accusing you of. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was being religiously oppressive in his effort to be religiously tolerant. You're free to worship your way as long as you also worship my way. Uh, Religious pluralism looks tolerant on the outside, but when you push in, you find a strong base note of intolerance. Christianity, on the other hand, looks intolerant on the outside because of its claim that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. But when you push in, you find a deep love that just simply melts in your mouth. So we learn something about tolerance. We learn that Christianity is not guilty of it, intolerance. We're victimized by it. Second, we learn something about suffering. 
You see, we have a racial minority here of three Jewish men thrown into a furnace. And uh, many today uh, look back to the previous century in which we lived and uh, reject God be simply because of all of the people that have been thrown into the furnace. I mean, how do you explain Hitler and Stalin? How do you explain the idea of a Holocaust in World War II? How can an all-powerful God and all-loving God allow these kinds of atrocities? That's a common question. Uh, if God were all-powerful but not all-loving, or all-loving and not all-powerful, then suffering, unjust suffering, could be explained. But how could an all-powerful and an all... How can an all-powerful God, I should say, be all-loving when he has the ability to stop all of these atrocities but doesn't do it? How do you answer a question like that? Well, what I'd like to do is try. Just a couple of three thoughts for you. First, we need to remember that no one in history suffered unjustly save one, and that would be, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the problem lies with you and me in our own fallen humanity. We've all suffered because of the sin of others. We all have. Some of those others may be in this room right now. Uh, maybe the person sitting next to you. Uh, we've all suffered because, or I should say, other people have suffered because of the sin of us. And we may have hurt some of the people in this room right now. Maybe the person sitting next to you. So we all deserve as sinners before a holy God to be wiped off the face of this earth. You see, every day that we survive death is due to nothing more than God's grace. Second thought about this point, God loves us by using the furnace of injustice to purify us. You see, every day that uh, we survive death really is due to the grace of God. And what a, what a furnace does is it strips us of those things in the world that have taken too much importance, uh, so much importance, I should say, that they've begun to usurp the place of God. You think about it, you know, it's very hard to determine where our first allegiance lies when things are really, really good. You know, we live at a good time here in America, and we can serve the God of a career, the God of family, the God of friends, the God of choices, uh, the God of health. At the same time, we serve the God of the Bible. It's not until suffering comes that all of these different secondary allegiances that we have intersect with our allegiance to God, and we see them for what they are. So the furnace is evidence of God's love because what it does when we go through the heat and and go through difficult times, what it does is it, it, it takes all of those things that ha have been secondary and they intersect with our allegiance to God and we see them for all that they are. So the furnace is an evidence of God's love. It just realigns our priorities for the greater joy of our allegiance to Christ. And then third, God loves us by going into the furnace with us. To love those who suffer is to suffer with them. There's R.C. Sproul that says the tears of God 
are the meaning of history. And our Heavenly Father isn't happy when we're hurting. He feels our pain, and he hurts with us. Parents understand that. The joys of parenthood are always going to be laced with pain. Most of us who are in here today uh, have children. And when our children are hurting, we're going to be hurting. Uh, If somehow family and friends are suffering, if you're suffering and uh, you've got a child suffering or a friend suffering and you're not suffering with them, then in reality you're probably not loving them. You know, you you think uh, when you suffer, how can you be sure that God loves you? I mean, why is this happening to me? Is God not loving me? In reality, we can be sure when we remember just exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, when we remember the cross itself. Because without the knowledge that Jesus went into, if you please, the ultimate furnace for you, there's no proof that our God that we worship is a loving God. See, if you don't believe in the biblical God, but in some kind of ethereal higher being, then we're all going to be in trouble. The furnaces of the world defeat that kind of a God. It's only when you know that God walked into the eternal furnace for you and suffered your eternal death will you feel his presence in the midst of the temporal furnace that you endure during just the trials that we have of life. So we learn something about suffering. And third, we learn something about conversion. Though Nebuchadnezzar is convicted by the God of Israel, he is not converted to the God of Israel, at least not here. Uh, I actually believe there's evidence in Daniel chapter 4 that uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually did bow a knee to the God the Father, and someday we're going to see this guy in heaven. But uh, here he was not convinced. Um, There's a great difference between conviction and conversion. Uh, uh, Your fiery trial may convict you to bow humbly before God and acknowledge him as such, but one's not converted until he or she is convicted by sin that Jesus died for that sin, and then they humbly acknowledge Christ as Savior. One of the things we realize is that God was not able to keep his son from the cross of Calvary because his purpose was that Jesus would die for our sin. But God was able to deliver his son Christ from the grave. His purpose was to provide a salvation for you. You know, if you've never believed in Jesus then that fourth person in the fiery furnace, it's that step of believing in him that brings about conversion in your life. You know, as for me, I don't believe in the equality of religions. Uh, I don't believe that there's multiple ways of salvation. The only one that offers a sinful guy like me any hope is one that's represented by the Lord Jesus Christ who died in my place. Selah. Father, thank you for who you are, what you've done. 
we look at these stories in the Bible that are so familiar with us, to us, and we remember them, we love them. We think of your power in delivering them, and we think of the joy that must have resulted because of that. But more than anything else, Father, it reminds us that uh, you are truly our king, and uh, what you've done cannot be duplicated. And that's why we are here worshiping you, loving you, and not just the life that you give us, but realizing that you're responsible for it. We pray, Father, that uh, these uh, simple stories in the scriptures that are so often taught uh, to uh, us in Sunday school, uh, as little children in many cases, Lord, and what you were able to do, we thank you that it testifies of the great God that you are, the power that you have, the gentleness with which you treat us, and the grace that follows us during our entire being and our life here on this earth. We love you for it, and I pray, Father, that uh, you'll continually use these kinds of situations to continually keep us on the right track uh, where we uh, can follow you in our daily walk and reminding us again that you are a great, benevolent God. And when we don't understand your ways, even in the midst of deep sorrow, Father, we want to be like these three young Jewish teenagers that uh, refused to bow a knee because they trusted in your purposes, even if it meant death. And we thank you uh, for that kind of faith in the people and the heroes of the Bible that we can learn from and uh, walk with and take comfort in. In Christ's name, amen.